Hello, Bulldogs. Thank you for tuning in to Who's Behind the Bulldog, Arvada High School's community interview podcast series. I'm your host and one of the assistant principals at Arvada, Jeremy Jensen. Each week, I'll sit down with someone from our Arvada community, be it staff, students, families, or other community members, to hear their stories. We'll discuss their histories, successes, challenges, learnings, future hopes and dreams, and much more. I hope you find some connections in their stories and hopefully are inspired to take some time to get to know them a bit better as our school year progresses. We have an amazing community here at Arvada, and I hope we can continue to strengthen that despite the challenges that await us in these unknown times. Today's guest bulldog is math teacher Jason Ziegler. This spring, Jason is teaching geometry and construction, algebra two, and AP calculus. In our conversation, Jason discusses many of Arvada's recent successes and touches a bit on the history. He digs into the benefits of restorative practices, both for a school as well as a society. He also talks about math instruction and some of the ways he overcomes the challenges faced by teaching the subject. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Who's Behind the Bulldog with Jason Ziegler. Jason Ziegler, thanks so much for joining me for Who's Behind the Bulldog today. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what brought you into education. Born and raised in Colorado. Both of my parents were teachers. Um, They served 30 plus years in the Denver public schools. Wanted to be a firefighter. Then I wanted to be a psychiatrist because my dad taught uh, psychology to high school. Freshman year of college, uh, I was still open, open option major and thinking about physics and I got my first C. And this is before growth mindset or um, all of the character development and uh, a C was a major setback for me. So um, I feel like I copped out and went with psychology, did not do med school, was a little surprised I wasn't gonna be able to be a shrink um, upon graduating. And uh, I I took enough math uh, as an elective in college that I only needed um, three or four math classes to become a teacher. So um, took uh, an extra semester in college and then um, decided on the teacher route. My parents both forbade me from working in the Denver public schools um, (laughs) because they said it was too administratively top heavy. So they were pretty happy when I landed in Jeffco at Arvada with an emergency license. Um, During my first year, I hadn't completed um, history of math and I hadn't completed history of Colorado, which were requirements for the endorsement from DU. And uh, I had a whole year to do it. And I failed to do either of those online classes independently. And they had to post my job, which was okay because Jamie True got my job and she was a dynamite lady. And then I served 10-ish years in a charter school. No regrets, though, because that's where I met my wife and, I don't know, really came into my own for teaching math there because I was only a math minor. So I'd say um, I did most of my learning math through teaching it. So and then after applying at Arvada uh, three separate times, uh, Roger Griffin and um, Elizabeth Kantner uh, finally gave me an opportunity to get back into this building teaching calculus and um, I'm very happy here. Uh, I've really liked the leadership roles that I've sort of fallen into or that have fallen into my lap and the opportunities I've had. And I'll be honest, I feel like my career really started when I came back here and 
saw what true PLCs feel like and started to be far more intentional about the way that students learn math. Awesome. With your background with psychology and physics, that must be super helpful for you as a math teacher. Um, the physics part is, you know, I'm always jealous of the science teachers. I feel like when it comes from to buy-in for them, um, they have it so easy because they can always blow stuff up or um, strap on a pair of rollerblades and throw a bowling ball around. And like the buy-in is there because it's just so hands-on and exciting. Whereas the math that makes all the physics work um, can be fairly dry. And it's kind of like, I've always looked at it as the analogy of basic arithmetic is like being able to talk. That's like your audio part of language. And then when you start to go into algebra and geometry and trigonometry and those are all really the same topic. I hate to say this to people, but they are they are so overlapping. And um, if you go far enough in math, you see that they are completely related. Um, I feel like they are separated only for the sake of having individual classes. But those those are still like just learning your ABCs. You know, once you get into the higher levels of math, the ones that you know connect your phone to the satellites and there's no such thing as a straight line and working in a Cartesian coordinate plane is not abstract enough to apply to the real world. Um, it's at that level that you're actually like composing Shakespeare with those letters. That's a really long analogy. Sorry about that. No, I, I, there's a case I think to be made of like math is math. Why do we need to like departmentalize some of these things? Why can't we create more connections, not just within math, but also between math and other um, areas like, you know, quote unquote, the disciplines that were created years and years ago. Uh, what are some things that you're particularly proud of uh, from your, in your own classroom throughout your time as a teacher facilitator at Arvada? I think when I was a younger teacher, I had an easier time relating with the students and I had a much easier time developing relationships with them, which has a return on investment for them buying in and trying to do the math. It wasn't until I got to Arvada though, that I explicitly started talking about that and explicitly started talking about what a risky environment a mathematics classroom is. When you look at the reputation of math in the United States, people generally boo and hiss at math. When I tell people uh, I'm a math teacher, the the biggest response is, oh, I hate math. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm very familiar with that reaction. <laughs> right. There's a kind of a, it's, it's, it's hard to separate one's identity and the way that uh, they see themselves as a math person. There's, there's so much, I don't know where it comes from exactly, but it's culturally like charged smart equals math. And I guarantee you, I'm not smart. I have made more poor choices in my life than I care to admit. And it's sad because I think math is a language with vocabulary and rules. And like any language, I think it can be acquired if you practice enough with a good feedback loop. You can't practice bad math. That's, that's a truth. But I hate it when I hear people say, I'm not a math person. And I'm just like, there is no such thing. That being said, you find out that like you have parents of students who excuse them from even trying in their math class because quote unquote, oh, our family, we're not math people. And so 
I've met parents on back to school night who have just said, you know what? I never, I was never good at it, but I'd love it if you just pass my kid because they're not going to be good at it either. And I'm like, well, if you say that out loud, yeah, gosh, you know? Um, and so when I got to Arvada and started being much more cognizant and aware of the culture of my classroom and how I needed to be more, not just welcoming, but like especially celebrating mistakes and focusing on character and really, you know, honing in on a, a growth mindset type stuff, you know, like one of the biggest is when a kid says, I can't, I make them restate that, but put yet at the end. And just like, I mean, the character development part, but also just the culture of the classroom as a welcoming environment where mistakes are celebrated so that, so that they're allowing themselves to take risks because um, there's, you always love that one kid who just has an answer for everything and just could care less whether they're right or wrong. And they somehow don't think about how the other students in the class are thinking about them. But um, when I got to, to Arvada, my wife had introduced me to this idea of classroom meetings, weekly classroom meetings where you circled up and you gave the students voice and choice in the direction of the classroom, whether that's classroom rules or regulations or norms, um, or um, just an opportunity to ask silly questions and get to know them on another level. And then it was always something that started with compliments because compliments are difficult. I've continued my work with classroom circles. This year during COVID time, we do a circle every day because I believe that with us being as disconnected to one another as we are, um, some element of human connection is probably much, much more important than diving into the math curriculum every single day. Um, so uh, my class has a circle every day with, um, and I don't, I, I still allow them to do compliments, but compliments are hard if they're real, if they're talking about a person's character. Um, so I allow them to either compliment or uh, state something for which they are grateful just because there's been so much research that comes out that says people who are mindfully grateful um, have a better psyche in general. So we do that. And then most recently, because Matt Teagarden said, you can't always spin it positively. You have to allow these kids to um, express their woes and trials and tribulations, allow them to have the opportunity to say what they're hopeful for. And um, I, so, so now all my classroom circles start with uh, either gratitude, hopefulness or a compliment. And the kids, they, they're so routine about it that they're getting pretty good. I, I get a whole lot of, I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for my family. And that's great. But ever so often you get a kid who's just like, I'm grateful to have all my senses or I'm grateful to have working arms and legs. And I'm just like, my mind explodes because they're actually getting to the heart of like where I really want them going. It's like, but yeah, my classroom circles kind of, caught note of the administration and uh, at around the same time that restorative practices was growing somewhere else in the Denver public schools and then slowly coming over this way, um, my classroom meetings and restorative proactive classroom circles had a lot of overlap. And so um, I jumped on that bandwagon quickly and I have just positive things to say about restorative practices. So I, where, was, where was the question? What am I proud of? I, I'd say that the fact that now I am much more aware of the social emotional learning side than just the math student side, I guess.
I think that my return on investment for acknowledging the human part and trying to develop relationships, it's there. It's absolutely there. It sometimes takes four months for a kid to finally open up, but you can tell the day they open up is the same day they start saying, all right, maybe I could be successful in this math class and just seeing some effort, seeing them try. You mentioned you like right away were sort of like um, gravitated towards the restorative practices. What is it about restorative mindset that kind of speaks to you? Initially, I thought it was just another way to frame what I was already doing in my classes with the circles. After going through training, I think that it is a, we've reached a point in society where we have to acknowledge restorative practices as a means to completely uh, revamp and change our judicial process and just so many, how do you say it, uh, inherent um, systematic inequities. That's what I'm gonna say. I think restorative practices at its core, if we truly embrace it, and I mean by that as a society, we could see some real positive change in um, what school is about, what what our judicial system is about, you name it, punishment it, and reform. It's kind of, it's similar to, I guess, like that mindset with uh, that you're, we're trying to fight against with, you mentioned earlier about math, right? It's like, how do we get to the mindset of like, um, because we know that this is going to be so beneficial for our society, how do we get people to sort of adapt that right mindset that this is a, a positive sort of thing in order for that to affect all the types of systems that we have? I think, I think that if the first thing that you do for restorative practices is say that, say to teachers, you're no longer an authority in your room, kids are no longer automatically in trouble, and there are no consequences. And I, I'm not saying that that's how it was sold to us, but that was the optics. And it was very rough to um, say no restorative practices has consequences that are often harder than our previous consequences because it's all about repairing the harm that has been created um, and taking responsibility for repairing that harm. Um, and I think that was so lacking in traditional uh, school discipline I, that, and that was the truth coming to Arvada that's all I heard all the time from everyone we have no discipline we have no discipline 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 some people saying you know if we put on uniforms on these kids it would solve everything and it's just sort of like gosh I don't know if I can really agree with that statement uh I don't think it would just solve everything and having more discipline would just mean more of our population taking that pipeline to prison. And I, uh, I think that I, I've grown a lot in the last couple of years. Gosh, you guys had me teach that wheel class to freshmen about social injustice. And I am uh, a straight white male. I think the word is cisgendered uh, and generationally privileged. <laughs> like, I'm the last candidate for that class. And when I talk to freshmen, now when I talk to sophomores now, the first thing I say is, you're in that class? Hey, I'm really sorry. I probably didn't do that class justice. Um, but oh my God, did I grow. Holy cow, I grew so much. I think everyone should be forced to try to teach that class and have to sit down with Sergio Giannis and gain some perspective. Because <laughs> uh, man, I, I, we only probably talked for total of three or four hours uh, over many different 
um, conversations, but he had me thinking in ways I've never, gosh, I grew a lot. I grew a lot. A lot. And it's really uh, exposed some of some of my in-laws for what what I think they are now. And, and, and every time I try to go head to head with my in-laws and get them to gain perspective, I fall flat, flat on my face. I just cannot do it. And so I try to channel my inner Sergio and then I still fail because I, you know, they, they've got all their pull yourselves up by the bootstraps uh, arguments that are just so hard to go against. They're kind of flawed, but, but anyway, anyway, I digress. I think for that learning and growing personally part, you first have to be okay with not feeling great about some of the things that you're going to learn about yourself and your privilege, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Like, you know, to get to the point where it is going to be uncomfortable and you have to be okay with that discomfort um, and not fall into that trap of like, okay, I'm, I'm just guilty now. Like, you know, I feel so ashamed of things or feel so guilty about how I behaved or how I acted or the things that I said, like, that's not productive, you know, like the things that are productive are like, what's done is done. Like it's, it's what you choose to do going forward that counts. Right. And acknowledgement is a big piece and key part of that puzzle, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Jason, getting back a little bit to math and just thinking about your math classroom, um, any tasks, activities, go-to projects or problems or, um, or anything from your classes that you're finding like each year going back to because you find them to be super fun and successful? It is seemingly so rare that you get to teach the same class from year to year here um, that I can say I did more of that at my old charter school, but I was also planning five preps on my own all the time. So I didn't get to dive in and be as intentional, I guess. I have taught calculus here for that many years and I always look forward to our, it's called Newton's law of cooling uh, activity. And uh, we do this like Sherlock Holmes, um, dead body chalk outline, um, kids lying on the floor when the class comes in. And every year I buy a Sherlock uh, fake costume prop pipe and a Sherlock hat and uh, a magnifying glass and then I have them read the same script and it's such a day away from the the um, heavy rigor of calculus the kids love it they eat it up um, we derive using integration um, and partial fraction decomposition which is the new topic for them that day Newton's law of cooling and we do it from the uh, differential equation that it relates to. Uh, so it's not completely academically non-rigorous, but it's like, I don't know, it's it's just the the role playing is so outside of the, you know, come to class and do the warm up and they they love it. And the culmination of it is not any math. It's actually that they end up writing me the end of the story. So once they've once we've used math math to um, calculate who done it. Uh, and we always insert the names of the kids in the class into this same script and the kids love it. Um, they get to like uh, talk about motives. They get to talk about evidence and they just write a silly story that for math, for AP calculus, that is a extra credit assignment, but man, I have gotten, you know, paragraphs to 10 pages worth of the worth of story, uh, incredibly written 
different story um, out of out of math students because of that. And I think they they really like that. I don't know. I for my other classes, I feel like I'm constantly inventing, inventing, and I would love more than anything to teach the same classes I did this year, next year, just because of how much I've created in Echo. So much of the mathy part will have been out of the way so that I could really focus on PRBLs, facilitating and eliciting um, mathematical discourse in my classroom. Uh, I feel like I don't do that nearly as well as I should. And at the same time, I'm forgiving myself for the pandemic fact that the Zoom stuff makes that so difficult because I, I mean, I, I've done the breakout rooms and so often I go into a breakout room and it is just crickets. And um, I see the, the idea behind getting mathematical discourse and problem-based learning as a beautiful means to have an entry event to um, the next unit of study and as a uh, opportunity to really put a foundation on their understanding of what's coming in that unit, something that they can refer back to often. At the same time, I'm like, the higher up it goes in the mathematical world, the, the harder it is to either relate to something in their lives that is simple enough to relate to the math concept concepts, or it's just not complex enough to apply to something in their life. It's like this saying that I saw once, people who think that math is complex fail to realize how complex the real world is. And um, I think that when you get into the really high levels of math, then that's where it is complex because it's applying to the real world. But when we take algebra one freshmen and we tell them that uh, a linear equation is like earning money for things that you want to buy in the real world, I feel bad because it's, it's a lie. It's, I mean, yes, they need to be able to reason like this. They absolutely need to be able to have that critical thought process and that abstract thought process to be able to um, function nicely as an adult in our society, but telling them that a linear equation is how they're gonna earn money, it falls short because there's so many different variables in the real world, you know. Jasmine and uh, Gina hopefully are listening so they can give you a similar schedule next year to take what you've built in Echo, which I know you've spent tons of effort and work just like building up great work and very accessible differentiated materials for those students. Um, it would be awesome to like be able to refine that and to just like carry on with that. And I, I sympathize, you know, as a former math teacher myself of like being able to find authentic connections. I think there are certain measurements uh, that we're accountable for and there's lots of pressure pressures to play this game uh, for testing purposes and standardized testing that do make it a little bit more challenging. Um, and so I just want to name and appreciate you for pushing those boundaries. It sounds like, you know, like you, you've got things within some of your courses that you're really integrating some, some English and, and writing and reading um, skills as well. Um, obviously, you're working with geometry and construction currently, we've got our amped class, like, there's lots of good things that we can find super meaningful connections to um, in our school. And I think that we're as a society and as an education system kind of transcending those mindsets about how math used to be. Absolutely. We got to change those mindsets. Yeah. 
Um, thinking about uh, how, how do you make your uh, classes equitable for your students? I know you've already spoken quite a bit about um, restorative practices, and I think that you probably agree that that's a, a huge uh, place to start. Um, anything else that you have found really works for you for mm -hmm. equitable purposes? I mean, uh, that is a constant work in progress. Reading um, that last book study, gosh, her name is failing me, but the culturally responsive teaching. Oh, is Retta Hammond? Yes, Retta Hammond. Um, I think that I am in my uh, infancy of really being able to adopt that. And I, I have to admit, I'm further along the way than a lot of people who I know who um, deny that that we should even be thinking about those things. I, I know I have, I have so many people in my life telling me that not lowering the bar, but accommodating or even trying to consider and put yourself in the shoes of your students and consider what their home life might be like is doing them a disservice because essentially when they're out of high school, they're gonna be treated the same, blah, blah, blah. And um, so why would you change your, ex not expectations, it's the wrong word, but like, I, it was fake, it was fake, you know? like I. I hold their hands through the curriculum. I get the right number of kids to pass so that it looks like I'm, I'm not a horrible teacher. Um, the kids who are awesome, they learn it at a level that is awesome and they go on to do awesome things. But the, the, the big trend there was a lot of kids, it was just seat time. And so um, I think if I can retrain my goal to just get them to be curious and believe that they could learn it, and focus on their character. I think that part, I think that's bringing more equity into my classroom and what I'm doing for future generations than anything else, than exceptionally high standards that they will rise to because they have time to allocate for half an hour of uh, work per class per night. Gosh, that, that was inequitable. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I digress uh, of what I'm saying. But just to kind of like uh, piggyback off that a little bit, you know, like we're really trying to focus on relationship driven um, discourse and like learning about our students. Like that's, you know, if we, if we care about them, then they're going to care about us and that's going to do nothing but help them. And I think once we do learn about them, I think a knee jerk reaction is oftentimes, well, you're man, going through a lot of hardships and it's like, I need to lower the bar for you so you can uh, accomplish these things. And I think there's where the fallacy is. It's like, you know, it's, it's one thing to be aware and to empathize with them and to, you know, have their back and have this relationship. And it's another to push them to reach that bar despite these things, right? And, and that's a big challenge, but, um, but I think that's the right mindset to have though. It's like, I'm not lowering the bar. It's, there's a difference between building this relationship and lowering a bar. And I have to make sure that I'm really clear about what my boundaries are and what I need to do to push you. No, and I mean, you know, it's it's not here or there, and I'm not going to make an argument about it. But like the the semester extensions were exactly where I found myself having to defend that idea again. That you know, and 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 people saying, how is that not lowering the bar? How are they not going to expect that come May? You know, and it's like, well, it's. It just takes time to consider. I don't know. Individual basis, I guess. Yeah, that's that's a good, like one size doesn't fit all. Um, and that I think that's part of what the math uh, team in, wrote into their uh, the grading proposal too. It's like the one size doesn't fit all. 
Um, what are your personal thoughts about, I have to ask about, about grading. Um, mm-hmm. I know that we've had lots of discussions as a staff and your team's had discussions, but where are you sitting right now? You ready? <laughs> uh, I think that because math is a skill, the content is, is a skill and the skill is the content. Um, it's like, a, it, the analogy is like learning music. Okay. Um, if you had a music student and you gave them a piece to practice and they were only hitting 60% of the notes correctly, firstly, that would sound awful. Um, but more importantly is that you wouldn't then turn around and say, Hey, you're ready for the next harder level. That's going to require you to apply the skills that you sort of already have from the previous year. Um, so I have a really hard time with, I personally, if, if I could have my own way, I would allow, uh, the, um, standards for graduation to be lowered a lot. I'd tell the colleges to deal with it. And I would repeat students until they had really strong skills in algebra one, because the truth about my calculus students is they don't make calculus mistakes. They make algebra one mistakes because it just, it looks like calculus when they do it. Um, but algebra one is the hardest class you'll ever take because everything else builds off of it. So if you're not a master of that, it's also uh, the so, first time that they really dig into something super abstract. Yes, it's the first time that their brain is going from the concrete arithmetic to the abstract um, representation that, it, that are equations. And some kids' brains just are not cognitively ready to um, abstract in that way. And it's no fault of their teachers and it's no fault of their own, but give it a couple of years. I've seen kids who... Uh, At my old charter school, we actually retained students. I've seen kids who failed, 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 but tried their hardest freshman year, um, come back and their junior year sail through it because those connections, those synapses have been pruned in their brain to a point where they, it just clicked. And, um, And I know that those kids, even though they didn't get as far in math for their high school career, and they had a foundational knowledge that meant that when they went to college and they were required to do college level math, they were so much more prepared to be able to do it because they were allowed to practice the math at their level when they were ready for it. So I would say, you know, uh, raise the standards to like 80% is passing in in math class because the next year we're going to make you apply all those skills at a more abstract level. Um, That being said, Uh, I really liked, even though I wasn't in the book study, all I did was listen to your humble badass educators about Dweck and then did a few, um, just a little bit of poking around on my own with him. And I really liked the idea that we need to stop teaching responsibility with our grade book and just let our grade book reflect the skills that we are being charged with teaching them. So um, last semester, I stood out from the math department in that well, not entirely. I had a, a team, uh, a PLC team that was on board with me for this, but I didn't put zeros in for anything that was homework, that was processed, because the that's practice. And if they're not going to show up to practice, guess what? They're not going to perform well on the tests. And if I have their, if I only assess the tests, then that should really demonstrate what uh, skills they have acquired and what they have mastered. 
uh, insofar as math. The process part, though, is so much more responsibility, and that um, that I don't want to talk. I don't want to teach responsibility with my grade book anymore. I, 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 his argument was infallible. So then, at the same time, considering we're in a pandemic, and I think that one of the hardest parts of this year has been just showing up and trying. Um, I also decided to have a 50% floor on any assessment that the kids showed up and tried on. I will say that uh, the kids who did some homework padded their grade in a way that if they failed the tests, that 50% minimum allowed them to pass. And we're talking about kids who in the before times would not have demonstrated skills on 80% of it. And they'd be sitting at a 20% in the class and they are going to struggle next year. And I don't want to think about the skill gap, skill hole ripple effects that this pandemic has had on um, students as we move forward. We're gonna see this for many, many years, I'm afraid. Um, so insofar as, Grading, I'm fully on board that a zero does not mean a, it's never a permanent zero. Let them make that up. Um, I also stopped doing lateness because my gosh, like pandemic, man, stuff comes up. I have AP calculus kids with brilliant minds who are willing to do a bunch of work uh, two weeks after the fact. That's fine, that's fine. I, I do have a problem with, with the AP cal, cal kids when they are handing in work after they took the test over it. Cause I'm like, guys, uh, that's like training for the Olympics after they happened is, doesn't make sense. Like, <laughs> anyway, uh, but I wouldn't hold them to a zero because again, that's, that's nonsense. Well, thank you for your kind of explanation there and your, or your thought process because it's really good to kind of hear not just like what your ideas are, but also sort of like the mentality behind them. And I think that you're absolutely right about like what some of the things that Duke was saying of like with responsibility, that's going to be naturally embedded, you know, like you're going to have natural consequences because you're not going to be able to perform well um, on these assessments or other activities in class that I am going to be holding you accountable for. So I'm not going to double ding you. And I'm also not going to give you that opportunity to pad your grade um, with just getting it done and passing without the skills, right? Like, so I think it works on, on both ends. And that being said, when I, when I argue with my in-laws that I'm no longer teaching responsibility with my grade book, they come at me with fire. They are like, you're what's wrong with the world. <laughs> you're lowering the expectations and everyone gets a handout. And I'm like, you guys, you just don't, you don't, you haven't walked a mile in anyone else's shoes. So you don't even understand. It's still there. It's still embedded, you know, yeah. like they still have to be responsible in order to right. pass, you know? Right. Um, Jason, anything that you're um, really trying to like grow in and focus on yourself professionally um, upcoming either this year or, or beyond? I have had to take a lot of, um, I've had to say no to a lot more people lately and I feel bad about it. I have um, taken many steps back in, in any leadership roles, uh, both in the union and at the school. And um, and I think that's okay uh, with two small kids at home. Uh, it's given me a lot more time to um, focus on the now with them. And I think that uh, looking back on my life, I'll have 
um, I think I'll be happier that I did that than go to one extra meeting about something else. I don't. I know that's kind of a cop out, but when they're older and more independent, that's when I think I can start saying yes to everything again. Because there was a while there, as soon as I got out of the charter school, I said yes to everything for four years straight. And it was a lot of fun, but um, I think it's, uh, and I, I can't even say that I'm proud of all of it because man, I think that some of the things that I found myself doing and saying yes to, I think some people were kind of angry about some of it. And I don't really necessarily want to talk about that, but like, you know, being uh, honored enough and privileged enough to go see New Tech the very first time, I can't believe I was part of that. And um, and I, st I still think I have a bigger buy-in for New Tech than a lot of teachers do because of that trip. Um, but... Uh, well, I think to your point, I think uh, self-care is so important. I mean, you prioritize social emotional learning for students and that also needs to be really prioritized for teachers as well. And like you give what you can and if you can give extra, great. But if you need to focus on other things at various points in your life for various reasons, you know, like that's uh, that's so important to be able, in order to be able to uh, be at your best, you have to, you know, really think about self-care and balancing your life and providing mm -hmm. yourself with breaks that you need. Indeed, indeed. Um, Jason, what would you consider to be your best failure? I've been thinking about this for like every single time I listen to one of these behind the bulldogs so many times and I keep arriving at the exact same answer and that is study hall. Um, three years ago, they gave me an opportunity to uh, take on the success center um, after Roger Griffin had it for one year and um, I will say that I was so excited for that as I saw so much potential in it. Um, but I did not get another opportunity to do it. And I'm not gonna say it's, well, it's, I didn't do a great job. I did not do a great job um, in comparison to Art Dwyer who is stellar at it. His demeanor and stoic nature is exactly what our freshmen need. So, my proudest failure is really just a, like, they got the right man for the job type thing. That's the truth. That is the truth. Would I have loved to have been given another opportunity to like try again and do better? Absolutely. But let's be honest, he's, it needed to go to him. So that is, uh, I'm all right with that failure. And what would you say is your big advice to other educators? Every year it gets easier. I guess maybe what my parents would tell me, and that is that there's a cyclical nature to education. And um, in the 70s, it was all experiential ed, experiential ed, and then it became standardized test scores and no child left behind. And now we're back to um, not experiential ed necessarily, but like, gosh, we looked at some schools uh, operational models and we can see there that experiential ed really does something for character development, which really does something for culture um, in a school. And, uh, you know, if there's one thing I didn't talk enough about um, in this interview, that is how, how much more aware I am about the culture of a school. 
and what it can do for what that school is capable of. And that's the part that I feel like NTN has incredibly good um, ideas behind culture. And I don't think that we've fully embraced those aspects yet. I don't think we've gotten there. And I know it's a work in progress and I know we're on the right trajectory. Like for instance, our portrait of a graduate, that's great, but here we are about to embark on this uh, equity interview process. And we're gonna have these students design a what their ideal school looks like and what you know what they want it to be. And I'm like, man, where, where was this equity uh, interview process back when we were rebranding re with the students, it should have been an integral part of the classroom. We should not have had rebranding starting at 3.15 after school in the library. It should have been part of the curriculum. You know, I, I just think, and I think NTN would agree with you, with us to say like, if you wanna do a foundation of your school on the portrait of a graduate, then bring in student voice and choice. And I'm not saying for a second that that wasn't the case. I just, I don't know who invented our portrait of a graduate. I, I know maybe some names, I'm not even gonna drop them, but like, I don't know if it was a committee or, I, I don't know. And I think that was so much more focused on our pathways at that point, it, before we had NTN come in. And so, I don't know. There was so many initiatives back in the day that were taking us in different directions. That was the thing I liked about NTN is it wrapped everything else up in a nice bow and said, this is this one thing. It's all encompassing and it's all right here. We got a lot of stuff in the works and I think, you know, it's all the right stuff, but I think it's just gonna take some time to um, make them really gel and, and work really well and harmoniously, but I think we'll definitely get there. But part of what I kind of took away from your last answer is that with this, you know, pendulum types of swinging things, like I just hoping that we don't overcorrect as a society, right? Like we're, let's not go too far one side or the other let's try to like find value in doing a variety of things and providing a variety of different accountability measures and experiences for our students mm -hmm. i really hope that it starts to focus more on character as a long-term measure of what education could be for you know really providing a service to the human race Jason, it's been awesome talking with you. Um, really appreciate uh, your insights on, on all these things. It's always a, a pleasure picking your brain, um, having some good discourse. Um, really appreciate all the stuff that you are doing for our students. It's really apparent that you care so much about the holistic approach to um, what our students really need and keep on fighting that fight with uh, all the social emotional, all the restorative stuff uh, because our students deserve you and need you. So thank you so much. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks a lot and uh, have a great weekend and we'll see you uh, next week. Yes, happy Friday. All right, enjoy. Bye-bye. <laughs>